Thank you for coming to the People's School tonight. Today, we're going to be discussing with the General Secretary of the Party of Communist USA. So, comrade, if you would just like to go ahead and introduce yourself. Okay. I'm Dr. Angelo D'Angelo, I'm 72 years old, the General Secretary of the Party of Communists. And I want to tell everybody I'm also the chair of the U.S. Friends of the Soviet People, which was started in 1992, right after the counter-revolution in the Soviet Union in 1991. My degrees are in the labor movement, U.S. labor movement, during the 20th century. So I want to thank everybody for coming on. The last meeting of the People's School, we discussed the early beginnings, 1919, after the revolution of 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution. Remember, there were two revolutions in 1917. There was the bourgeois revolution of Kerensky and the petty bourgeoisie, and then there was the socialist revolution in October, depending on what calendar you want to talk about, October, November. So taking off from the last class, a couple of questions that I wanted to go in and explain. Number one, the situation in the World Communist Movement during the 60s, the introduction of Khrushchev revisionism and how it affected Maoism, how Maoism grew in China, and the difference between the two, how it had its effect on the communist movement throughout the world. Many of the new parties that followed Peking put ML after their name, whereas in the beginning, from Lenin, and from Stalin, all the parties believed in Marxism and Leninism. They were all ML parties originally. And then to stress the adherence to Marxism-Leninism, the parties that followed Peking in the 60s and the 70s, up until the present time, put ML after their name. I explained that. I explained how after Mao Zedong died, the banner of ML went to the Enver Hoxha, forces in Albania, and how he then took that and extended it into something that I think personally was anti-Marxist-Leninist, his whole thesis of Soviet imperialism as being the greatest threat to the world instead of U.S. imperialism. And we all remember that Lenin wrote, imperialism was the highest stage of capitalism. And the Enver Hoxha forces in the communist movement started siding with the U.S., Everything from Angola, Mozambique, they supported a guy by the name of Suambi, who was headed by the CIA in that area of Africa. The CIA supported him. Also, they supported Pinochet, if you remember. Pinochet was the fascist general who overthrew Allende in 1973. So I just wanted to go back to that period of time chronologically that we were talking about. I'm going to open it up to any questions. With the Sino-Soviet split and China aligned with American imperialism, I think their foreign policy also got coordinated against the Soviet Union, like in Angola, in Chile, in the wars of the Indochina peoples, because China supported Pol Pot and also actually invaded Vietnam. So how is that to be seen in the context that the Mao Zedong people were saying that they were correcting revisionism and becoming revolutionary against revisionism. But the reality was that they were collaborators of imperialism. How is that to be seen? 
from a moral and proletarian standpoint? Okay, good question. My thesis, my understanding, after studying this question for a long time, and the thing that turned me around was the interview that I never saw before between Tito in Yugoslavia and Mao Zedong. We found it in the files of the Carnegie Peace Foundation. We found this in his files about two years ago. What those files showed, they were discussing, they were on Tito's yacht. Now, this was in 1958. Remember, 56 was the so-called secret speech at the 20th Party Congress of the Soviet Party in which Nikita Khrushchev attacked Stalin. Everything from the cult of personality to everything else was thrown in as negative. And the so-called terror, and et cetera, et cetera, gulags, that whole list, which was used by the bourgeoisie and by their historians ever since then. But that meeting on the yacht is very interesting. And I'm going to paraphrase the whole thing. You can do some research for yourself, everyone. Mao had a discussion, and the discussion went like this. He's telling Tito, he says, since we both have had problems with Stalin, I'll repeat it, since we both have had problems with Stalin, why can't we form an alliance, China and Yugoslavia, against the Soviet Union? Now, when I studied that and read that, I began to see that my original idea was correct, and that is Stalin was the excuse for Mao Zedong. His main thing was he wanted to create what we call Great Han Chauvinism, where he wanted Peking to replace Moscow as the center of the world revolutionary movement. And he would do anything to do that, including working behind the scenes with market socialists like Tito, of all people, Tito. So I don't believe at all that the issue of peaceful coexistence was the issue of one of the splits. By the way, 1948, Stalin wrote a speech which was carried in the World Communist Movement. The name of the speech was The Need for Peaceful Coexistence. Now that completely floored me because I thought Khrushchev was the one who came up with that term. And now I find out it was Stalin who came up with that term in 1948, which Stalin called for peaceful coexistence among countries that work on a different economic system so that they wouldn't have any nuclear situation. So that's how I perceive it, that the so-called split was not about revisionism, but it was about being the center of the world communist movement. And if we remember what happened, everyone, the parties all split throughout the planet, and some of them joined China and some of them remained faithful to Moscow. So that's my perception of how you could explain that uh, a country that said that they were against revisionism was forming an alliance with U.S. imperialism. It's because the Tito-Mao Zedong discussion, to me, shows that that was their real aim, to outflank Moscow as the center of the world communist movement. Thank you, Comrade. What was his deal? Was that an Islamic country? And also, what was his personal setup? 
How did he ever get to be whoever he was? Why was he having troubles with the Soviets? Like most of the leaders, including Tito and, and Vahoksa, they led the resistance movement during World War II in their countries. They led the resistance movement to the occupation by Nazi Germany and Italy of those countries. Not only did they lead those movements, but they were the head of the communist partisan movement that led those movements. So when the war ended and the communist partisans became the new leadership of those countries, remember, there was a big election in Italy in that period, and the Pope publicly came out and said, don't vote for the communists. And the communists were going to take over electorally because of the leadership in the anti-fascist movement in Italy called the Partisan Movement. So like all the others, that's how Enver Hoxha came on the scene. So for a year or two, they were all getting along. And then the first difference between Tito and Stalin was basically over nationalism. This is what I see. Tito wanted to be a player and wanted Yugoslavia not to be beholden to Moscow as the leader of the socialist forces in the planet. So what he did is he started to make a rapprochement with Western countries, and he used something called the Non-Aligned Movement. It was a movement that came out of something called the Bandan Conference, was in Indonesia. At that conference, they formed a movement of non-aligned countries. In other words, we're neither capitalists nor we're communists. That's what they were saying. Now, Enver Hoxha got along with the Soviet Union until the 20th Party Congress. Albania used the Stalin difference to form a difference with the Soviet Party. That later developed when China came along and opened up a position of follow Peking, not Moscow, that kind of position. Albania was the only Eastern European country that followed China. Why would he do it? Remember, Albania was the only country in Eastern Europe that was not really part of the Comecon countries, Council for Mutual Economic Assistance, which was the communist version of the common market, the economic coalition. He had briefly been involved with that, and I believe, in my opinion, it's all based on nationalism. Where can they, on this new world map, where can these countries come out as more of a leadership position? Would it be with Moscow, and depending where they are geographically, or China? And I believe that's what it was about. I hope I answered some of your questions. On documents, what were the role of U.S. imperialism and Europe, Marshall Plan, and all of those joining China against Soviet Union? And what about non-aligned nations? Okay, that's a good question. It depends on what period chronologically we're talking about. Remember, there were non-aligned countries like Egypt under Abdul Nasser, who was the father of the Egyptian Revolution the one in the 20th century. He, although was involved with the non-aligned movement, he had all these agreements with the Soviet Union to build technological buildings inside Egypt, the Aswan Dam, for example, which changed the whole face of Egypt. They used to have floods from the time of the Bible all the way up the Red Sea. I don't know if you know this story. 
the so-called splitting of the Red Sea. That was something that periodically happened at that period of time, biblically. So they were flooding in areas that were growing food that had floods, and that would cause starvation. So the Aswan Dam was built with the Soviet help. And so on one hand, the non-aligned was working among each other, but in reality, many of the non-aligned countries, including India, were working with the Soviet Union. India, Egypt, they were working with the Soviet Union. As far as documents of U.S. imperialism and the Marshall Plan, we have a booklet that was produced by the communist movement. It's called the Marshall Plan. It was written at that period of time. And the position of the communist movement was, under the Soviet Union, the position was that they're going to use this in order to prevent a socialist upheaval in Western Europe, and therefore do not buy into it. I want you to know that Tito did buy into the Marshall Plan. That's very important to know that. And that's another reason why Tito wanted Yugoslavia separate from Moscow. They were the only country in Eastern Europe that put into the Marshall Plan. And what did the Marshall Plan do? That's the question. The Marshall Plan allowed American economic interests to go into that part of Europe, Western Europe, specifically Italy, France, and to basically buy off elections. And it gave money through the IMF, International Monetary Fund type of situation. It gave those to the governments to pull themselves out of the depression after World War II, the destruction. United States' role, especially in all of that, because Marshall Plan was U.S. economic plan, economic and political, and also politically U.S. and China, they created the issue of wanting China to be so-called leader of communist movement. Well, and the Marshall Plan started in 47, 48. China at that time was under the Kuomintang. In 1949, they had a revolution. That's when the communists came in. And for the first 10 years, from 1949 to 1959, there were agreements with the Soviet Union, and the Soviet engineers came into China and built factories, whole factories with the blueprints they had had in Russia. So they built factories. So for 10 years, China was completely relying on the Soviet Union for economic advancement and assistance. So this had nothing to do with the Marshall Plan. That was in Western Europe, and that was 47, 48, and 49. I have serious reservation about the Marshall Plan, if it was truly American money, or money rerouted back to Europe, stolen money from the bankers, and the ruling classes of Europe who played the Nazi war and deposited their monies in the United States. And I think the United States was taking that money back to Europe and looking as if it was a benevolent nation, as the humanitarian nation that was concerned in the development of Europe. I think that was totally fake, and I think that was not American taxpayers' money. Probably true. So the new left? in this country in the 60s, how that affected the communist movement, and what the difference of the new left was from the so-called old left. They called it the old left. Well, remember, the old left in the United States was subjected to harassment and attack during the McCarthy period. 
McCarthy period started 1947 to 1963, believe it or not. In Staten Island, where I live, it was all the way up until 63 and 64. Two doctors that were the head of something called HIP, which was sort of like a government-funded insurance company. They were red-baited by the local Staten Island advance. When I first came to Staten Island in 66, they were still suffering. Dr. William Abrinsky, Dr. Elaine Allen and William Abrinsky, and I was at their house many times. We had club meetings at their house, and they were red-baited, okay? And so the McCarthy period lasted in some parts of the countries as far as 62, 63, 64. But the reason why we had a McCarthy period was to attack the mass movement that the communists had built. For example, you should all be writing this stuff down if you can. There was a book written by Michael Harrington, who was a social democrat. He was the head of the Socialist Party. He wrote a book called Socialism. It's a big, thick book, and he wrote it in the early 70s. And he said in his book, the reason that we had a McCarthy period was because the Democrats and Republicans joined together because the Communist Party was the third largest political force electorally in the country. And so they had to get rid of them. And that's why we had a McCarthy period, in order to get rid of them as an alternative. It had nothing to do with Russia, had nothing to do with anything else. It was all an internal thing. And that seems to make more sense to me because in 1948, there was formed the third party movement called the Progressive Party, led by at one time vice president of the Democratic Party, Henry Wallace. And they had this formation that Paul Robeson ran under and others. In New York, it was called the ALP, American Labor Party. They only got about a million votes, but it was the beginning for the first time for the communists to be involved in electoral politics in this country on a national level. Because remember, during the 30s, it was an act passed by Congress called the Smith Act. Now, the Smith Act, if I remember correctly, was originally made for the Nazis. It was a way to curtail the Nazi involvement in this country. It was never used against the Nazis, never. It was used against the Communist Party. That's important for people to know that. Never used against the Nazis. So a so-called anti-Nazi legislation was used against the Communist Party, not the Nazi movement. Because at that time, we're talking about the 30s, we had the American-German Bund, B-U-N-D, which was very active. They had marches all over the country, including New York. They had a big rally of 20,000 American Nazis at the old Madison Square Garden in New York City. So it was a threat. And so they passed the Smith Act. My point is that the old left was destroyed. We had something called International Workers' Order, I-W-O. Very, very influential had over 150,000 members. It was a mass organization led by the Communist Party. And what was the IWO? It was an insurance company, of all things. So people used to buy insurance who lived in tenements, poor people, who lived in tenements throughout the country and, and in farms. Because it was a large number of people, they were able to get a better rate. And so the IWO was a left-wing insurance company. Plus, it was organized among lodges or organizations among ethnic backgrounds. So we had an Italian section of the IWO. We had a Jewish section. 
We had a Russian section, which Arrow Park came out of, the Russian section, American-Russian Organization of Workers, that exists in New York. That was one of the IWO attempts to set up summer camps, and they were done along ethnic backgrounds. And it was very successful. Instead of like now you have Ukrainian fascists, we had Ukrainian communists through the IWO, International Workers' Order. And all these organizations were destroyed during the McCarthy period. So by the time the generation came around, this young generation that came around in 62 and 63, the beginning of the civil rights movement, there was no communist around who were able to give them any kind of guidance. So they had to start from scratch, the new left, in my opinion. And where did they look to? Well, 62, they started to look to Ho Chi Minh. They started to look to other places around the world. Cuba was a big influence in the new left. But what was absent was anything that had to do with the Soviet Union. That was taboo and that was destroyed, especially Stalin, anything to do with Stalin. So we had this mass movements. We had American for the Protection of the Farm Born, which dealt with immigrants. So the first people who dealt with immigrants were not the people you look around you see today, Trotskyites and anarchists. It was the communists. The American Committee for the Protection of the Farm Born, the woman that led it was Pettibone Smith. And how did I find out all these names of all these groups? I went when I was in college. There was a section by the House Un-American Activities Committee on all communist front organizations. So I went to that and I looked and I studied them. One of them was called Citizens Committee for Constitutional Liberties, CCCL. And who was the head of that organization? Miriam Friedlander, who was a city council person in New York City. Her and her husband, his name was Carl Ross, they were the ones who set up this Citizens Committee, and it was like the ACLU. Remember, the American Civil Liberties Union in the McCarthy period threw out all the communists. Remember that, including Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who was on the board of directors. So we had to set up new organizations for civil liberties for the American people. And one of them was the CCCL. Another one was the Emergency Civil Liberties Committee led by Edith Tiger, Edith Tiger, T-I-G-E-R. And so I did some study of this quickly when I was in college. And what I did is I sent information to all of them, and I joined about, I would say, more than half of them I joined, and therefore I got involved with them. And it was very helpful that I did that. That was in 1969 that I did that. In 1984, we were involved with a struggle against them putting a nuclear port in Staten Island in New York called the Home Port. And guess who was on the city council? Marian Friedlander. And she was a main speaker and a supporter of the struggle against the nuclear bases. So the point I'm making, why did I go into this history? Very simple. It had been destroyed during the McCarthy period. The young people didn't have no place to know. They had to start from scratch. And that's why the new left was born. They had no understanding of many, many things. They followed someone named Herbert Marcuse, who was a semi-Marxist, definitely not Marxist-Leninist, a semi-Marxist, but he was the only one that was around that we could study at the time. So he became influential. I'd like to stop there and open it up to questions. What you're referring to in the 50s 
these progressive groups, and they were all listed on what was known as the Attorney General's list of subversive organizations. And so there were groups all the way from even groups like the ACLU that were not even communists. And in some cases, they were even anti-communists, but that made no difference. They were added to the Attorney General's list, and if you were a member of those groups, you were considered an enemy of the government. And so a lot of left-wing people were on these lists. Sometimes it included unions, like the ILWU, the Longshore Warehouse Union on the West Coast. There was an effort to deport the president of that union. His name was Harry Bridges. He was a citizen of Australia. They tried to deport him four times unsuccessfully. And there was a committee called the Committee to Defend Harry Bridges. And that was on the Attorney General's subversive list. And so the other thing that they did in those days, specifically to target communists, was they believed that communists were not people of faith. And so they added the phrase to the Pledge of Allegiance under God. So in the 50s, before, if you were born in a certain period of time, you grew up saying the Pledge of Allegiance without saying under God. And once that was passed, everybody didn't know how to say the Pledge of Allegiance because they had to learn how to say it the new way with under God in it. So it's little things like that that they did to mess people up. But it was pretty intense. People committed suicide and did all kinds of things. That's how much pressure there was. That's all. Including the political strength that the communist movement had, during the 30s in the CIO, the most successful organizers were communists. And so as they rose to leadership in the CIO unions, that was also considered a threat to the government because they were the most successful organizers and they were the most successful unions. And so after World War II, when World War II there weren't any strikes, then strikes started taking place because people started demanding more of the share of the profits. That's when they went after the CIO unions and made them expel communists. And if they didn't, then they were expelled from the CIO or when they joined the AFL-CIO. So I just wanted to mention that. About how the new left didn't really have any Marxist-Leninists to really guide. They had like semi-Marxist to almost anti-Marxist. And I know when it comes down to it, a lot of our information has been drastically suppressed and almost just violently destroyed in many areas. I wanted to say when it comes down to it, I really love meetings like these two because they're informative. It gets the older cadre from the Marxist-Leninist movement informing the new left, basically, trying to build that guide. But I wanted to ask, do you think that's possible we could try to bring back the old information and the old archives that we once had to try to lead the new communist movement that's around today, basically like we did in the past? The effort to reprint all the stuff that has been done in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, we reprinted it. And the reason why we did that was indirectly to do exactly what you said. One of the pamphlets that we reprinted was about Hans Eisler's brother, Gerhard. Gerhard Eisler was a German anti-fascist who left Germany, was able to escape during the Hitler regime. He came here. Gerhard was the one that was imprisoned. Hansa was a musician, and he's the one who wrote all these songs that we remember from the anti-fascist period in German history. 
For example, the peat bog soldiers, I'm not going to go into that right now. The peat bog soldiers, also the national anthem of the German Democratic Republic, Arise from the Ashes, which I urge everyone to listen to. It's a very stirring and emotional. It gives me goosebumps, showing that you could have a new Germany without Nazism and fascism, whereas West Germany was infested with the Nazis. But anyway, yes, we're doing that indirectly. And we printed stuff from the IWO, International Workers' Order. It's the pamphlet, We Could Have Plenty. That was the name of it. The other one was the Gerhard Eisler pamphlet, which was put out by the Civil Rights Congress, CRC, which was a communist formation. It was our answer to the NAACP. You know that W. Du Bois left the NAACP because he was the first editor of the crisis which was the newsletter of the NAACP. He left them, and he came over to the communists because he saw what they were. The NAACP is nothing more than an attempt to pacify the black liberation movement. I just saw an excellent thing on Thurgood Marshall, a U.S. movie on Thurgood Marshall, the black Supreme Court justice. And when he first started out, they show you that it was the communists that were defending Blacks in the South and the rest of the country were being lynched. And he went into it, Thurgood Marshall, to get it away from the communists. The movie goes into that. It was a movie made within the last 15 years. So we set up the Civil Rights Congress. So our job, if we could reprint everything that we're doing and get it into the hands, get it into the hands of everyone, including the young people. The Civil Rights Congress. There was a person that was the leader of that called William L. Patterson. William L. Patterson was an amazing African-American communist who was involved with the Civil Rights Congress. He created a document called We Charge Genocide. I highly recommend going over it because everything he pointed out back then in that document is still true today. Correct. I want to add to it. It was presented to the United Nations in the early 50s. And it was written by Patterson, but it was also people who worked on it was Comrade Paul Robeson. And there's pictures of Aslanda Robeson and Paul Robeson and William Patterson given the document. They made it into a book, which, unfortunately, the people that have the rights to it are international publishers, the old publishing house of the old party. They just reprinted that, in fact, two years ago. We charged genocide. And it does show... As Carmen said, the leadership of black <laughs> communists in the movement. What is the opinion on military intervention for the preservation of communism, which appeared in Hungary in 1956 and in Czechoslovakia in 1968? So I need to know what is your opinion concerning military intervention. And the second one is the Brezhnev Doctrine. What do you think okay. about that? Very, in, including what happened in Vietnam against Cambodia or Pol Pot in China. Okay, first let's talk about the Brezhnev Doctrine. That's the bourgeoisie use that term. We don't use that term. We call it proletarian internationalism. And there's a difference. The term proletarian internationalism is simple. You don't hear other people talking about it except Marxist-Leninists. And it's basically this. Lenin said that any revolution, if it cannot defend itself, it's not worth it. If you cannot defend the revolution, of the working class when they take power, then you're not worth anything. So what we did is we had the Warsaw Pact set up. 
Warsaw Pact started, this is very important, Warsaw Pact started in 52-53. NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which was led by the U.S., that was started in 1949. I don't know the exact years, but it was three years before Warsaw Pact started. So this excuse that NATO was there to protect Europe from a military attack by the Warsaw Pact countries is a lie, because NATO started first. Secondly, what happened in all these countries you mentioned, in 1956, remember the war ended in 45. Who was in control of Hungary in 45? The Horthy forces, General Horthy, was the head of a group called the Iron Cross, which was a fascist, anti-Semitic party. They were allies with Germany, General Horthy. When the war ended and the Red Army came in, and the Communist Party was able to get back into power in Hungary, the anti-communist fascist forces were still there. The war ended in 45. 56 was only one. Ten years later, 11 years later, they were still there. And they were the ones with the egging of the Catholic Church. Cardinal Mazenti was the cardinal from the Catholic Church, who was heavily involved with the Horthy forces before the war. These people tried to take power. And they called it a revolution. We correctly call it a counter-revolution. And in my opinion, to his credit, to his credit, Khrushchev with the Warsaw Pact countries came in and put down that fascist rebellion. Let me just tell you, there's a lot of books on that by communists. One of them is called The Truth About Hungary by Herbert Aptaker. Herbert Aptaker, The Truth About Hungary. But there was the reason why I want to ask the question is because it created a lot of splits with the leftist community. So the point I'm making is that proletarian internationalism was something that we deemed we had to do to protect ourselves, as Lenin said. So when the counter-revolution came in in 68, under Alexander Dubček, he made no bones about what he wanted to do. He wanted to take Czechoslovakia out of the Warsaw military pact, this is important. Please listen to this. He wanted to restructure the economy in Czechoslovakia. Now, this is very important. Dubček, he had an economic minister who I don't remember the name right now. The economic minister was roommates with Gorbachev when Gorbachev was a student taking courses in Czechoslovakia when he was a young student. His roommate was the economic minister under Dubček. I think that's more than a coincidence. That's very interesting because Gorbachev's economic policy was called perestroika. In Russian, it means restructuring, restructuring. So that's when they wanted to take it away from central planning and start restructuring it to put it on a different kind of economy where one factory would compete against another factory, no more centralized planning. And so, therefore, it was the job of the World Communist Movement, and I believe it was correct under proletarian internationalism, to attack the CIA, which was pushing this. So that's my answer to you on the issue of proletarian internationalism. So basically, military intervention is permissible to preserve communism. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. This made me think of an old cartoon. I think it was from the People's World in the 40s or 50s. It's like two friends, and the first one, there's this cop that's beating a bunch of workers on the picket line. And one of the workers says, 
but I'm an anti-communist. And in the next frame, the cop is even beating him harder. And the cop is saying, I don't care what kind of communist you are. Right. I'm glad you said that. That was a cartoon by Fred Wright. And he used to write for United Electrical Cartoons, for United Electrical UE News. And UE, wow. has, there was 18 unions started by the CIO. Out of the 18, I want everybody to know this, out of the 18 unions, 11 were led by communists. Ben Gold, Central Committee of the party, led the Four Workers Union. And you can go on and on and on. Abraham Feinglass, Central Committee, worked with the Butcherman Workers Union. So all these unions that were organized, the government had to get rid of them because these groups were part of the World Federation of Trade Unions. I want everybody to know that. WFTU, which we work with. Our party works with WFTU today. Labor Today works with them. But the Soviets helped set up WFTU. So did the United States. So did England. The so-called Trade Union Congress. And the United States did it with the CIO. But during the Cold War period, 47, they got rid of that. That's what the whole idea we were talking about. The old left was not around when the new left was being born. And that's why we have the problems in the new left. It's important to know where we are today, why we have problems with Workers' World, why we have problems with Maoists, why we have problems with anarchists. This is nothing new. This started way, 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 way back. The OCP had 15 to 20,000 members in the 70s, in the 70s, and it makes a difference. Ultra-left people say, oh, it doesn't matter how big you are. What matters is your correct line. I disagree with that. It also does matter how many people you have because it shows how you're influencing. We come across individuals who's been with us for a year, some less than a year, and then all of a sudden they pick up believers. And they leave a hole because communists, we built machines, machines to fight against U.S. imperialism, machines to fight for the working class. Everybody is at his spot in that machine. If someone leaves or is absent from their spot, that machine does not operate. It definitely stops. So we are positively, each of us, act as a cog and part of that machinery. And we've had people who uh, all of a sudden just say, oh, I've had too much of this, I've done too much work, and I ask them, how long have you been with us? Oh, five months, six months, and that's too much work. And I want to give you a famous quote from Bertolt Breck. He was a German communist. He wrote, if you remember Three Penny Opera, that famous Mac the Knife became famous, the song Mac the Knife, which comes from the Three Penny Opera, which was written by the German communist Bertolt Breck. Here's what he said. He said, there are those who struggle one day in their lives, and they are important. There are those who struggle two or three, five months of their life. They're more important. There are those who struggle years. They are very important. But there are those who struggle their whole life. They are the indispensable ones. Remember that quote. They are the indispensable ones. So without them... The working class movement, the revolutionary working class movement cannot go forward. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information, or if you're interested in attending classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube channel, 
or email info at psmls.org.